Okay. Welcome to this edition of The Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. Those three lefts are for anarchism, socialism, and ecology, for going in a different direction, for post-capitalist future, and present. Uh, back around to ecology this time, every third episode or so, um, greenwashing, debunking, just general talking about ecology and environmentalism in the milieu of this crisis that we are in, many crises. This edition, I will be talking about Plan of the Humans, responses to it, doing a deep dive into a certain controversy, because under the my mindset is if you can understand one controversy really well, or any particular thing that is happening, then that opens up the avenues to understanding a lot of other things. What I mean when this particular thing, by understanding a film and what it's doing and how people are reacting to it, you can then understand bits about the nonprofit industrial complex. How are movements co-opted by the system? And how do we avoid that fate? And do the co people being co-opted have a point? Or what kind of nuanced positions could we take between the you can't work with the system whatsoever only direct action gets the goods. Let's all form our own autonomous zone, chaz it up, which is cool. Though, is it sustainable? Is it something that can spread out? Every city is not going to abandon part of town or a block uh, to be pretty much be reformatted into something that is post-capitalist. Though it is certainly a nice model to show what that would actually look like. First, I'm going to cover a piece of news that is almost trivial in its kind of its ubiquitous nature. Being someone who values the environment, you know, Facebook shows me various articles that are this country has reached 100% renewables or they're on track to. This is the kind of good optimistic news that can be put out in environmentalist circles to show that progress is being made against the climate crisis. That as far as electricity is concerned, that we are going 100% renewable or that certain countries have proven that you can. Devil's in the details, though. But here is a story about how Portugal has reached 100% renewables and that they have also ended fossil fuel subsidies. Very nice. This is from two years ago. Filed by a, a Sophie Voraf via Renew Economy. Portugal's renewable energy sources generated enough power to exceed total grid demand across the month of March, a new report found, setting a standard that is expected to become the norm for the European nation. According to Portuguese grid operator REN, renewable energy output over the month reached almost 5 gigawatts, surpassing gigawatt hours, surpassing the nation's total electricity need for March, which topped uh, 4.5 gigawatts. In that time, power generated by Portugal's hydroelectric dams accounted for half or 55% of the monthly consumption, boosted by drought-breaking rainfall of four times the average month. And wind power, 42%. So this was due to the fact that it rained a bit more that particular month, or at least that there was enough water to make the hydroelectric dams overperform. The achievement comes nearly one year after hydro, wind, and solar power helped push the Iberian country to run on 100% renewable electricity for 105 hours straight. 
Last March, however, the average renewable supply was 62%. The new record coincides with the move by the Portuguese government last Tuesday to suspend annual subsidies of around 20 million euros for guaranteed power supplies paid to producers, which most of which goes to fossil fuel plants left in standby mode. So remember that. Why do I mention why do I stress that? Because Planet of the Humans mentions in its older sections that fossil fuel plants still have to be run idly as backup generators for a renewable energy grid. And interestingly, its detractors say that's old information, that that's something that is not currently the case. Now currently, the story is about how Portugal is not longer going to guarantee those plants, but they still exist today and may need to be in the future, especially since there's no guarantee there will be enough water to make sure the hydroelectric dams produce enough power. Hydroelectric dams, especially the large ones that create gigawatt hours of energy, are also, in a way, environmentally destructive. They completely destroy whole valleys, right? Microhydro, different story, smaller dams, less damage, especially if you have many smaller dams instead of one large one. Some more graduated landscape changes. It's expected that by 2040, the production of renewable energy, 2040, a whole nother 20 years, that this production will be able to guarantee in a cost-effective way the total annual electricity consumption of mainland Portugal. A group noted that while fossil fuel plants still worked for short periods to complement that supply, those who fully compensated by other periods of greater renewable production. Quoting, this data, besides indicating a historical milestone in the Portuguese electricity sector, demonstrate that renewable energy can be relied upon as a secure and viable source with which to completely meet the country's needs. Electricity demands. Electricity demands. Not all other demands, but electricity at least. And this is one of the things I point out when it comes to the renewables debate slash how do we address climate crisis is that energy use is much more massive than just electricity. And I think a problem with public perception and the conversation is that there's a onerous focus on electricity because that's what most people are paying for as individual household consumers, their electricity. But they're also paying for their heat, which is always gas, and thus why fracking is so necessary, because we're going to keep heating with gas. And that's where the lie of we're addressing climate change, we don't need to build out more fossil fuel infrastructure or subsidize fossil fuels. No, that's going to continue for decades, because we still heat with gas. And as long as we focus on electricity only, and does your house have solar panels, or are we building a community solar farm, or, or so on, and focusing on, let's see, aggregated community buy-ins of energy, of electricity, that doesn't include the commercial sector, it doesn't include industry. That's where all the waste really is. It's not in the household with the light bulbs. More on that as we go on, because I have a lot of stories here. As Euroactive uh, reports, the European Parliament Commission and member states are currently negotiating an update for the bloc's renewable rules with Parliament members calling for a 35% renewable target. Why only a third, huh? Portugal's renewable energy target, meanwhile, is not all that much higher. According to the IEA, 
It has a 2020 target of 31%, 60% to come through renewable electricity demand, 35% from heating and cooling, 11% from the transport sector. So there, there, there's a good little breakdown that even when all the electricity needs are renewable, that's accounting for a third of actual energy use, at least. Sorry, yeah, so out of just getting renewable energy, their target in this year was to get to 31%, most of which, 60%, was just through electricity. And the rest was where actually most energy use currently is. The heating, cooling, transportation, and making stuff. So I just use that as a prelude of that there's a conversation of, look how great this is. Portugal's making a lot of progress, and it's not to discount it. But there's a greater context of capitalist world that is inherently wasteful. First, I did a kind of a live stream about my re, you know quick reaction to Planet of the Humans. Here's a more thought-out breakdown of my kind of critiques or things to say about it. Uh, its major detraction is that it does feel like a misanthropic movie, that it's very depressing and just about it's kind of going down on humanity as a whole, and thus where these charges of eco-fascism, meaning that it promotes population decline as the only way forward or a solution. It was a mistake in my eyes that halfway through the movies, the halfway point, the experts that he's uh, the film has ex uh, assembled thus far, they are put in a montage form of them talking, of, the, of clips of them, there's five of them or so, all giving a kind of misanthropic clip of them talking about how they don't know how to solve it, but there needs to be some kind of die-off or population decline. What they mean is, and I'm, I'm doing that thing where it's like, well, that's not really what they mean. Well, they are mistaken in going to that language first and using, and the film for using those particular clips. But it's the kind of the halfway point of the frustrated arms up like, we don't know how to solve this. And then it goes into uh, biomass and the, well, here are the solutions proposed and they don't work either. And then capitalist co-option. And then the last third of the movie or the last maybe 20 minutes, then subtly, and maybe this is where it's like you can critique something for not being subtle, being too over the head, anvil moral. And then it can also be critiqued and the message can be lost if you're too subtle. And I think the subtle message, and this is what Moore says in all his interviews, is that the message is that we just need to reduce consumption, not population. The midpoint is that the message looks like, or is, that it's we reduce population. When throughout the later half of the film, the conclusion, which is kind of weak, it's a weak conclusion, that we need to reduce consumption and that means tackling capitalism. He doesn't use the word capitalism. Maybe this is the director's choice, his friend. And this is where it's like, well, he did not have a problem bashing capitalism in Capitalism, a love story. And he is 
had no problem when making public interviews that the problem is the system of capitalism as a whole. And this is why he gets booed by liberals. It's not the first time he's had a controversy where liberals are yelling at him and calling him an enemy. This goes back to the Bush era. But in the third act, he does, um, I think, I, the you know he calls out the profit motive and things like that. Profit motive, particularly, which is a dog whistle of sorts of like, no, it's, this is capitalism. This is the mode of production. This is the, how the economy works, that it's profit-based. You have to make a profit to pay the bank back, no matter what kind of business you are, even if you're a co-op. But here's, uh, let's look at two stories, two articles written by detractors and break them down and I'll rant about them in a little bit. The first is from Common Dreams from Alison Rose Levy. And this is from the point of like, I consider this point of view to be a confused one. By not having an anarchist or kind of anti-systemic or anti-establishment lens, you're kind of left with a conclusion that Moore's film is misanthropy, that it's just naysaying for the sake of it, and thus then you're confused about well, what's his motive. So this is the title is, What's Michael Moore's Actual Agenda? In place of highlighting the Green New Deal as the mother load option, the film offers no options to the climate deadlock. Now he says in the interviews more that he wants to spark a conversation and create controversy for that sake. So the film, you know, it's, it's part of the package that's like, yes, I am looking to create controversy because conversation needs to be uh needs to be moved because it's being stuck uh, at least in the mainstream especially in the progressive and the activist or the nonprofit circles and sector that the answer is a green new deal and by green new deal the democratic green new deal check out other episodes where i break down what the problem with that is green new deal of bernie sanders and aoc where they don't want to cut you know they don't put in any cuts to the military the sectors that actually use the most energy it's mostly going after yes electricity use and this you know jobs program you know that we're going to consume our way out of the climate crisis when ecologically speaking consumption mass consumption wasteful consumption is the problem and this is what really makes me kind of like and anxious and also a little like misanthropic laugh laughter of seeing in my local paper a story about how the mall and its owners are begging the county to let them reopen and all and then and they quote and they bring out the small quote unquote small business well the mostly small business owners who are tenants of the mall saying like i just want to pay my staff again i want to provide jobs it's a shoe store you know and I'm just my 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 thinking is like, yes, just please just let us consume again. We need to consume. We don't eat if you the shoppers don't consume. We gotta get back to normal. We got to buy, buy, buy. Buy things you don't need. Buy things that you don't won't use more than once. You know the mall must be open. For the sake of people's welfare and livelihood. After months of, of the 
post-pandemic lockdown. So let's get going with this article here. As a climate voter and reporter, no matter who gets criticized, I applaud anyone with a bona fide analysis of why and how we are losing the war on climate. But I'm not a fan of superficial analysis, manipulation of beliefs, scapegoating, or hidden agendas. That's why I think the Planet of the Humans misses the mark and shoots at the wrong target, which vulnerable Americans sheltering at home can't so easily see. What's even more problematic is that we don't know Michael Moore's actual agenda. I consider this bad faith because you could just ask him what his agenda is, and it's to, well, criticize that the movement, you know, point out that the movement has been co-opted, but it doesn't want to admit it's co-opted. I'll go into that more with another article. But first, the, to me, bad faith criticism here. Many who hope to elect a climate-friendly administration this fall, which, does that, is that supposed to like, oh yeah, 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 so he's talking about this year, okay. So, is she suggesting that Biden is climate-friendly? He's promised he won't touch the gas industry. He's basically like, basically told uh, climate activists not to vote for him. <laughs> We're looking to, but by, by, you know, a climate-friendly administration, I mean, they mean Democrats, but they won't say the Democratic Party. They're not, they're not Democratic shills, you see, these people, but they totally are. They just, as long as they don't say Democrats, you know, but a climate-friendly administration, I won't say what party they're in or, uh, you know, but it'll be the, the people that have a chance of winning, uh, riding with Biden. This fall are now stuck at home digesting a political loss. Okay, so now she's talking about burners. Okay, so no, no, she's talking about burners. In place of a concerted climate action, the political stage is set for a contest between, between a climate destroyer and a fossil fuel enabler. If humans were a better, more righteous film, it would help people in that task. So is she just suggesting that the movie should be about how everyone should join the, and vote for the Green Party? Something tells me that's not her deal. But that we should just campaign to move Biden to you know, a better position with the Green New Deal, the Sunrise Movement. Moving on. Uh, but apparently seven weeks of confinement is all it takes for Americans to develop amnesia about the 2019 vision of a crucially needed energy transition to fossil fuels, Green New Deal, Democratic. Topic at the Democratic Party debates, barely got like five minutes. It also promised to reinvigorate, reinvigorate but ho-hum on the next thing, which happens to be the re-release of Planet of the Humans, produced by Michael Moore and directed by Jeff Gibbs. In place of highlighting the Green New Deal as the mother load option, the film offers no options to the climate deadlock. Instead, it substitutes a backward look into the early evolution of renewable energy tech without a solid update on what it is technically possible today. As it takes viewers trespassing through bygone trade shows, the film cast doubt on renewables, on environmental leaders, and by its erasure, on the most evolved approach for a definitive transition away from fossil fuels, the Green New Deal. By failing to examine the Green New Deal core offerings while exhuming its predecessors, it's anyone's guess whether Moore or Gibbs simply felt defeated by climate action's long trajectory or might possibly be engaged in revising both the film and the Moore brand thanks to new backing. Literally half that movie is just not relevant to the Green New Deal, says Mark Z. Jacobson. And, and this article features Jacobson as the kind of counter voice. 
professor of civil environmental engineering at Stanford and an architect of its original energy transition plan, told me in a podcast interview. Although the film develops extensively into biomass and biofuels and the use of gas as a backup, the Green New Deal doesn't include any these dirty sources, according to Jacobson. No biofuel, no biomass, no coal with car- carbon capture, no gas with carbon capture, no natural gas, no nuclear, no coal. Nonetheless, while ignoring that current technology answers many of the filmmaker's prior objections in vignettes shot a decade ago, the film zeroes in on its designated targets but omits mention of the socio-political context for the earlier green ventures, which were less successful. But I think the point of the film, speaking for myself, is that the context has not changed at all, that these texts are being developed in capitalism, that they're going to be owned and patented and sold commercially at these trade shows. The clips of the trade shows were not just to showcase how lackluster the tech was to me as a viewer, but it was showing how they were commodities, that there were things to buy, and they were spiffy, that they needed to be advertised and jibbed up, that it needed this nice PR sheen of solar power on your roof, sold to middle-class buyers, people who can afford them, people with south-facing roofs. Points out uh, this article that Obama's fossil fuel friendly policy was rebranded as Hillary Clinton's clean energy plan. See how easy that was to just call it clean energy? Thanks to Obama's backstage help in the current election, some new version of that recipe will become Biden's or possibly Como's or the policy of whoever is designated as the Democratic contender. Unfortunately, whoever that is won't be the candidate who will champion and fight to enact the Green New Deal. It's more likely to be the one who told a climate activist, go vote for someone else, referring to Biden. Why are we in these dire straits? Because during the primary, despite numerous reminders, many people forgot the preeminence of climate. Instead, they voted for their gender, their pocketbook, or their economic status, allowing their friends and circles to do likewise. This is called poverty of political will. That's why we're stuck with capitalism and its big foot on climate course correction. So there's point, um, not point one, but clue one, that capitalism is taken for granted, that it's something we're stuck with, because there's even a lack of political will to have a mainstream, rather, by mainstream, I mean a presidential candidate that is a democratic socialist. But in this paragraph, is she throwing shade on people who voted for Sanders because Medicaid for all was their primary policy and not climate? I don't think people didn't vote for Bernie or they voted for Biden because they were thinking or because they weren't thinking of climate. Because when it came to the climate debate, none of the candidates were making it a focus. Not a central focus. And if they did, it was just Green New Deal trademark. Because if you actually did make a film about the Green New Deal, you need to talk about the Green Party and they're not going to do that. So this film, this hypothetical Uh, Let's explore the Green New Deal, its origins, what it could actually be, and what it would actually have to be if it would actually address the underlying issues, what it would take to actually reduce our waste, our consumption, and thus the fossil fuels we pump into the atmosphere. It would have to be eco-socialist. Even though humans derides capitalism, oh, okay, acknowledgement of that, 
Warren Gibbs failed to mention the long-standing capitalist capture of our government and economy. Well, past movies have been all about that. That's Moore's oeuvre, that capitalism captures everything. His first film, Roger and Me, was all about how the capitalism had captured the unions. And that's, you know, and the, thus he's been attacked by liberals all the way. The union bosses, the war, the, you know, people who were um, not, not anti-war uh, during the 03, gun culture, et cetera, et cetera. Capitalism has always been there. It's always been like, oh, there's an underlying economic reason, and it's government and economic capture. But now he's turning it to, now the environmental movement has also been captured. That was part three of the movie. Moving on. As though the climate temporizing and insufficient technological reach of the early renewable energy environmentalists occurred in a vacuum. As the filmmakers cannily free themselves from the task of offering solutions, the film leaves viewers overlooking the source of climate inaction and projecting solutions that don't yet exist, such as ways to address overpopulation, but which the film trumpets as the definitive problem, but only in the middle of it, or erasing ones that do exist like the Green New Deal. But you see, he erases it, or doesn't mention the Green New Deal, but in fact, he kind of does. Like, the point is that the thing that's being criticized is the Green New Deal, the Democratic one anyway, the one that's pitched by these mainstream nonprofits like Sunrise, that the Green New Deal they're fighting for is one where the corporations get paid to convert to renewables. Like, they're, they're just, the corporations are just going to get paid again, but this time to, quote-unquote, do the right thing. Just like how Verizon was paid, uh, and I know this is kind of a little different, but paid to create internet in rural areas or to make high-speed internet available in American cities, and they chose to not do that. They took the money, and they didn't do jack. I am not providing the link here. I will produce, I will provide the link to the movie. It is back up. As a longtime media critic, uh, when all around me gets inducted by such manipulations, I point them out and counsel people to avoid them. What I object to is co-opting the feminine to build a franchise for, not exactly sure what, agenda. No, please speak to me like an adult and tell me your agenda. Don't invade my subconscious mind. We already have too much of that, thanks to television. My own consumer advice? Turn off the TV. Be careful of moving images you watch. In the wrong hands, TV and YouTube videos can be neurologically evasive. Well, that's positive. Uh, in erasing both the Green New Deal and the Sunrise Movement and its diverse group of energized young people, because apparently that's the solution. Push the Democrats to adopt a policy they will never implement correctly. That's as much of a dead end as saying there's nothing to do. If, if anything, it's false hope. That's the point. More, and, and that's the point of his movie, that like this Green New Deal thing is false hope because it's made up of all of this tech that is nothing but that. Tech. Technological solutions to systemic social and economic problems. We can't tech tech our way out of overconsumption because if anything, it's about producing more to solve the problem of overconsumption. Remember, it's not an overpopulation problem because America uses, what, it was a third of the world's resources per capita. Uh, and then she suggests, or at least like explores the possibilities. Let's see, like, you know, if, if they're erasing the left wing movement, which I 
it's left leaning, sure. But more and company vilify climate leaders and remedies boosting population control, uh, which is, again, just an oversimplification of the movie, and chooses consumerism over systemic change. But, I, I, yeah, I don't agree with that. Because to attack consumerism is to induce systemic change. To attack the ability, like, I just did it with the mall example. To say that, like, why are these businesses so dependent on this, the crass consumerism to make sure that their employees can eat and pay rent or have a place to live? And that we need to open the mall even while there's still an active pandemic nationwide, at least. Here in my area, we're down to zero cases. That's why we're reopening. We're still doing it slowly, but we're doing it. And, and, and the malls and the bigger businesses want things to open faster, like, oh, we were zero cases. Well, hold on. We still want to take it easy. We don't want to end up like Florida. This focus not only arms the right wing, which I don't, we shouldn't care. Basically, everything we do creates energy for counteraction. But that's only a reason to be stronger with what we do. Uh, but who have thoroughly embraced humans for their Coke-funded nihilism. Uh, referring to Fox News and stuff. But he also positions and rebrands himself as a political populist, Trump style. Not really. His real goal may be public office, which is not happening, and his real target donors. Again, a suggestion of like real target donors, but Moore makes it clear like he doesn't have large donors. He's always clear about who funds his films. But what are the values he actually espouses? They're not evident from the film, and he is not being transparent about them. Based on humans and the mommy isn't happy story, meaning Gaia, I guess, the planet, uh, it begins with enlisting white suburban moms and further marginalizing others. Perhaps I am mistaken. I hope I am. All I know is that before I sign up and donate my emotional body to the cause, I want to see transparency and integrity. That's what Bernie Sanders was all about. American Huskers are a mixed bag. He's a New York-based journalist. Yeah, so so I'm going to leave you with that. I've done enough counter-ranting with that because, hell, I have other content to do that for me. But first, I love Gasland. I like Josh Fox, which is why it hurts to see Josh Fox make himself look like an idiot, but more a shill, again, taking uh, with the same message of Green New Deal is all, how dare you say that would be ineffectual? How dare you say we don't need to elect Democrats and that the problem is bigger than that? That capitalist capture is something that we should be worried about and something that is the inherently the problem and we should do something about it. What it, that thing is, is implied by many, a lot of other content. And the thing about like this confusion from um, Allison here is from the fact that she seems to not want to do the work of interpreting the movie. She wanted it to be unsubtle. She wants all the answers, or she wants a movie to give the answers directly. Moore makes it clear that the movie, he doesn't, yeah, not that he doesn't care, but it's like, no, I just want to leave people thinking about it. Thinking about what would it take to undo capitalist capture of, uh, of, these, of, of the climate movement or renewable energy, for that matter. So here's the even 
like so this one is like the you know allison is the i don't know where he's coming from and thus like uh but i'm also going to attribute some straw mans here's the one that's more of a negative from josh fox uh published by the nation meet the new flack for oil and gas michael moore this is where it's like michael moore is doing the ga- the the fossil fuel industry's work for them by attacking the green new deal or just throwing some shade completely like negative uh what am i talking about bad faith extremely bad faith planet of the humans is wildly unscientific outdated full of falsehoods and benefits fossil fuel industry promoters so i'm just gonna read it without commentary because the next one will go into that For all of you who thought 2020 couldn't get any weirder, here comes Planet of the Humans, the latest film from Michael Moore, uh, directed by Jeff Gibbs, already mentioned that, dropped on Earth Day uh, for free. Like many Moore's fans, I thought, cool, how timely. Trump is in the White House, ripping every environmental law to shreds, rolling back dozens of rules, trashing the Paris Agreement, denying climate change, and opening up millions of acres for fracking. We need a movie on this complex and dramatic moment. Quick aside, so why would he just attack Trump? If it's so complex and dramatic, then we need something exploring the complexity of what's really going on. And what's going on is way more than what Trump does in the White House. Back to Fox. In the past 10 years, despite Trump, the not-so-environmentally-friendly Obama administration, the environmental movement has become a formidable, organized, paradigm-shifting game-changer. The achievements have been stunning. Now, this is actually uh, going back to Fox. This is what's kind of interesting about the double takes and the and the almost flip-flopping of it all. In Gasland 2, published in the late Obama years, he points out towards the end of the movie that part of the growth of fracking worldwide is promoted by Hillary Clinton's State Department. Was this an argument to vote for Trump at the time? It was certainly not an argument to vote for Hillary. It's one of the reasons, actually, why uh, certain friends of mine did vote for Jill Stein. It was specifically on the fact that she, Hillary, would not commit to banning fracking or even, you know, posture about it. She would say, oh, no, we need fracking. Fracking's good. It's a bridge fuel. In fact, I've been promoting fracking across the world because it's American companies like Halliburton that do it. So it's interesting, you know, that, you know, you could be bad faith about Josh Fox. Well, I guess uh, I guess he wanted Trump to win. He didn't want Hillary to win. Or he pointed out that Hillary uh, was bad on climate. So back to Fox's words. He also goes on about the Green New Deal, fossil f- free movements. But at the same time, by pushing up the Green New Deal and this, you know, there's a reason why it's so focused on the Green New Deal via the Democratic Party. That erases a lot of other things, like the transition movement, which is completely grassroots, not dependent on who's elected or anything like that. It's much smaller, though. But after watching Planet of the Humans for about 10 minutes, I wanted to turn it off. Instead, I took notes. Because the film is so dangerous, so wildly off track and full of misinformation, fossil fuel industry talking points 
and unfounded wacky statements, you could be forgiven for thinking it was created by Breitbart News or Steve Bannon, and not the erstwhile bastion of progressive bombast that is Michael Moore. Even though the film is exactly it's what Moore is. That's why it's like, who is Josh Fox talking about? To begin with, the film utterly ignores the newly emboldened environmental movement. Even more baffling, it totally ignores Trump. Exactly, because it's bigger than Trump. That's what he's been trying to say. That's what Moore said before the election, that there are things going on. People are hurting in ways that are beyond who's president. That's why Trump could be could win that election. And he did. Instead, it directs its attacks on renewable energy and on the basic premise of all climate action. So to, so to draw another parallel, it was taken as a given that Hillary Clinton would win in 2016 by most everyone, except lefties and actual anti-establishment folks like Moore, like Green Party's people, like myself. Uh, we were, at the very least, I would say I was skeptical that she would win, especially you know when Moore made his points about like, no, in Michigan, no one's going, like people are not gonna turn out for Hillary. And that means the base that comes out for Trump We'll give him an edge. It's not that's not more being populist. It's him saying that people are frustrated and they don't know what to do. And certainly Democrats that don't offer positive vision, or the very least, even if they did, then the question is who believed them? They're damaged goods completely. Let's see. He points out that. Planet of the Humans repeats a simple, contrarian, and nonsensical premise. Renewable energy doesn't work. I realize that sounds insane. Renewable energy, the most important energy innovation of this century, uh, of which represent the only way civilization can possibly decarbonize. But therein lies the craw. It's only nonsensical if you're thinking of our civilization being as it is. Yes, completely converting to renewables is how this civilization with its mass consumption and 40% waste can be decarbonized. But it's not to say that the technology itself doesn't work, which is, again, the confusing point about the film that like, yeah, it makes it seem like it's the tech itself. But part of its uh, journey through that to the halfway point in the first act is pointing out that the creation of renewable energy is still an industrial process. It's still something that is very intensive when it comes to use of resources, natural resources. These are all points I've made in previous episodes, so I'll keep going. But you, you get the gist of what Josh Fox is going. I'll link to this article so you can read it yourself. All in all, points out that uh, Moore's um, experts are all white. Way to make it not about race. The claim that it is all those overpopulated countries that are causing the problem would be deeply problematic even in normal times. Except he doesn't do that. But again, the halfway point, you have these more misanthropic uh, writers, right? And they are academics, they're writers. And some of them are, no, no, so some of them are activists in Vermont, but again, those are, those are Vermonters. They're old, retired Vermonters. They're not Brooklynites or whatever. And then he asks who benefits and he basically draws the conclusion that the fossil fuel industry benefits because this is turning people off from joining the, what I would consider, dead-end movement for, uh, in the Democratic Party. 
So let's go into what I mean by that and go into the details so I just don't sound like a crank. Naysaying for the sake of naysaying because Josh Fox is successful and I'm not. So this is from Counterpunch, actual left-wing publication, not just left-leaning. Tells the facts, names the names. This is written by Michael Donnelly. Meltdown of the Careerist Greens, published at the end of April. First, a quote from Philip Pullman, author of His Dark Materials. It's all got to change. If we come out of this crisis with all the rickety, fly-blown, worm-eaten old structures still intact, the same vain and indolent public school boys in charge, the same hedge fund managers stuffing their overloaded pockets with greasy fingers, our descendants will not forgive us, nor should they. We must burn out the old corruption and establish a better way of living together. Start of the article. The wildly, uniquely popular documentary Planet of the Humans has been viewed two million times in less than four days, likely hundreds of thousands more by the time you read this. Highly compensated, thoroughly compromised climate warriors or renewable energy entrepreneurs who have nothing but pie-in-the-sky renewable energy myths to show for 13 years and hundreds of billions of dollars spent, respond to the documentary, certainly not to be to the damning facts presented by someone finally pointing out their ineptness and ties to bad actors and weak Democrats, but with Trumpian-level denials and personal attacks. No wonder fossil fuel use is at an all-time high and rising, and we are at 420 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, which is also rising, and has never dropped after all of their efforts. My involvement. Let's get this out of the way. Yes, I know all the principles in creating of this documentary. We all have ties to our hometown of Flint. Michael Moore's very first eco-documentary was one on the massive pollution in our hometown that he did at the age of 15. Director Jeff Gibbs is one of my best friends. So this is from someone who is a friend of the film, if you couldn't tell. Ozzy Zenner is an engineer who has written extensively on the topic. His fine book, Green Illusions, I support their work. I think of them all good-hearted, caring geniuses. I've also installed six solar systems. They work well off-grid. I've also helped maintain two small hydroelectric plants. One creates 40 kilowatt hours, oh, 40 kilowatts, the other 13 kilowatts. I have installed and operated a ram pump. I have built solar showers. I know a decent amount about non-fossil fuel technology. I saw with this disclaimer, because if I did not, for sure, what I have to say would be added to the many bogus, desperate really, disses of the film coming out of Green Central HQ. How what I have to say will easily be ignored or attacked on the grounds of my friendships rather than the facts. Subtitle, Activist High Priest Malpractice. Now let's go to the case and look at some of these bogus dismissals. How is this for informed discussion. Point one, The Guardian gave the movie a four-star review. Decent, but somehow it took the film to task for not ta taking Greta Thunberg to task for crossing the Atlantic on a sailboat with a backup diesel generator, which I wasn't even aware was part of the old guard's anti-Greta rubbish. Guy forbid. Quoting from Guardian article, All the green liberal A-listers, Bill McKibben, Al Gore, Van Jones, and Robert F. Kennedy, are attacked in this film as a pompous and complacent high priest cast of the environmental movement, who are shilling for a fossil fuel industry that has sneakily taken them over. Although it should be said, uh, for all his radical bravado, Gibbs does not dare criticize Thunberg. That's because Thunberg has, is not being co-opted and has not sold out. And in fact, crossing the Atlantic in a sailboat was actually a pretty boss move. 
The film attacks no one. It asks these uh, – this is the um, writer now speaking. The film attacks no one. It asks these top environmentalists questions, and they are given plenty of film time to answer them. McKibben has three speaking appearances. What they are complaining about now is similar to Trump saying he never said what he said on film. Clearly, Thunberg has to look out for being co-opted by the careerist Greens, Greens in quotes. I think she is on to them. She is the best breath of fresh air to come along in a long time. Why would Gibbs bother her, an ally? Number two, the film is denounced as calling for population control in many reviews and posts. One review by something calling themselves Vote to Survive wrote this contradictory statement, quoting them, At the heart of Planet of the Humans is the basic premise that humans cannot continue a path of infinite growth on a finite planet. That much is indisputable. What does it mean? Does it mean that all industrialization is bad? Does it mean that replacing fossil fuels with an all-electric economy fueled by wind and sun is not achievable or not desirable? Does it mean that there is no solution to global warming apart from killing off a large part of the world's population? No, says the author. By the author, it's um, Michael. No, says Michael. The only way to use less fossil fuels is to use less fossil fuels, not reconstitute them as renewable. The only way to consume less resources is to consume less resources. There is no way wind and sun can equal the amount of current power use, much less the huge increases predicted, you know, the growth of energy use, which if, if our economy has to keep growing, then energy use has to keep growing. The reality is that without drastically lowering overall consumption, it actually will kill off a large part of the world's population. Case three. So now censorship from the left is okay. Filmmaker Josh Fox has started a chain letter demanding Michael Moore apologize. He notes one left film distributor, Films for Action, has pulled the film. He does not note that it was on YouTube for free for 30 days and has been viewed over 2 million times. He, Jeff, and Ozzy decided to release it for free on the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. It is so disheartening that every successive Earth Day, the life support system, is more at risk. It is sobering to ask some questions why, given the wide public support for conservation measures. Case four. Tom Enfethausen wrote one called Planet of the Humans is Crap. He admits to just one fact. Sleazy solar energy festivals that claim to run on solar, but actually run on diesel generators. Hard to refute from that footage used in the film. But from there, he just pimps renewables and rants against insults, the producers by name, and weirdly lays more most of his contempt on Richard Heinberg, even falsely claiming Heinberg was behind it all. David Herwag posted Enfelhausen's rant with this comment. I just wasted an hour and a half of my life watching a bogus takedown of renewable energy and the environmental movement only because Michael Moore is pushing it. Here is my friend Tom Enfelhausen's critique. I'd only add that if all the bullshit of this film were converted to actual biomass, it could power a major city. Back to Michael. Compare that to true Guyan ecologist Derek Jensen's uh, sagacious comment when he posted it. I just watched this yesterday. It's really fantastic. It's biocentric. And what we need to help return environmentalism back to being about saving wild nature and not trying to power the industrial economy a bit longer. The end left me sobbing. Heads up, the ending leaves everyone sobbing. Case 5. 
Josh Fox even called for the movie's removal from the internet and did get the small outfit called Films for Action to drop it, after Michael Moore graced them with the opportunity to post it. Yet another left attempting to enforcing a status quo, no talk rule. It will remain on YouTube for free viewing, probably indefinitely. Now, uh, update on this. I could finish the episode with this, but actually it's... Uh, he uh, Josh Fox did, in fact, get a photographer who his work was featured in the film to do a copyright strike and YouTube took down the movie for about a week. It's been reinstated. Uh, number six, K six. I can't even comment much on the vicious balderdash Michael Mann has put out, but by far the most top gaslighting is being done by 350 founder Bill McKibben. Link provided. So uh, link provided, please, and then read uh, Bill McKibben's response to the movie and how, you know, he's misrepresented. How dare they, you know, make me look like a sellout. Totally not what's happening. I'm totally like never been funded by fossil fuel execs. The wireless on truth is claiming that the filmmakers also supported biomass when he did. The filmmakers never supported biomass. No idea where he gets that. Jeff Gibbs was one of the first on the front lines of biomass opposition over a decade ago. Some of the same compromised greens took him to task over it from the beginning. That certainly amped up his interest in doing the film. Not to mention the film does not hide in the credits that these organizations oppose biomass officially now. The credits stuff points out these groups continued support for biomass after they publicly said they did not. It's akin to the Sierra Club saying that they oppose public forest liquidation while approving forest timber sales, as long as they go by a different name, forest health, or fuels reduction, thinning, or some other clever stump creation euphemism. Stump creation is the end result of every forest service or bureau of land management forestry scheme, no matter what it is officially called. Who do you think benefits most from biomass? Big Timber, of course. That means the Koch brothers, owners of Georgia Pacific Timber, specifically. Note, the Koch brothers are also the top recipients of solar energy tax subsidies. McKibben did not oppose nature-consuming biomass until after his encounter with Gibbs in 2015. So maybe the March was in 2015, not 14. Same as with the Sierra Club's change of heart on biomass, during most of the Obama time, Obama time, when Biomass took off with full administration support and subsidies. They supported it. McKibben supported biomass because that is what the funders would fund and the corporate Democrats wanted it, period. Real eco-science never entered into it. The biomass plant that he saluted and got much acclaim for at Millbury is still open, consuming over 20,000 tons of ground-up trees annually from a 75-mile radius around the college. That's three truckloads of forest habitat per day. He has never called for it to be shut down. His silence on the pro-fossil fuel Democrats, especially Obama's pimping fracking, making the U.S. the top fossil fuel producer in the world, his silence on all the other problematic issues with renewables that the documentary raised is also very telling. I had an email exchange with McKibben starting uh, in 2012. It started out just fine. We even agreed on the pitfall of what he called relying on the insiders, and the honchos. In 2013, Bill wrote a postmortem on the failed cap-and-trade bill, where he concluded, if the inside the Beltway groups had been able to turn to a real grassroots activist movement, the outcome might have been different. I praised him for that. 
though he and the Big Greens clearly had no idea how to achieve a legit grassroots movement. AstroTurf is their turf. When I brought up the need for a 350 dot uh, at all to make drastically lowering consumption a critical part of their main effort, McKibben was dismissive, as he had more important divestment, empire-building stuff to do. He responded, Okay, work on that part. I'm working literally as many hours as I have in a waking day on the divestment stuff right now. We've got 210 campuses up and running, which is a lot of kids with interesting questions. I don't see McKibben as some evil guy. Ambitious with a savior complex? Sure. Though, I'm coming around to what some see him being quite slow on the uptake. McKibben did finally take to heart the need for he and other campaigners to stop stop jet-setting Planet to attend Comfabs and recent accolades. Are you listening, Naomi Klein? I praised him again when he started to appear at conferences by Skype. The carbon footprint of the climate movement itself rivals that of a small third world country, which is also a fossil fuel industry talking point that these green climate leaders are hypocrites, that they produce a very large carbon footprint. And their justification is, well, I'm doing it to engage everyone else to join the climate movement. So my consumption is justified. Very weak, right? Efficacy matters. Perception is more important than reality. If someone perceives something to be true, it is more important than if it is a fact true. As a quote from Ivanka Trump, apparently. Michael concludes, the entire big money Democratic Party captured corporate green movement has been following Ivanka's postulation for far too long, well before she said it. If Bill really wants to get beyond this, he needs to step up and take some responsibility for the monumental lack of success. Nothing got left in the ground by leave it in the ground sloganeering. The COVID response has shown that the only way to leave it in the ground is to leave it in the ground by using far less of it. The life support system is at a breaking point. We have to do better than that immediately. He really needs to explain his support for biomass when every legitimate activist I know, I know of knew full well that it was ecocidal and opposed it fiercely. And he needs to disown this uh, saluted biomass plant and demand its immediate shutdown or its current claim to now be against biomass is true. As I've said above, he was given three opportunities to address the issues in the film. All that he is decrying about the film's portrayal of him, he either wrote or it came directly out of his mouth. The desperate at being called out and feel for losing their big oil-based foundation grants, Big Green's biggest mistake is thinking we don't have a lot more in reserve. These people are in the same sold-out folks who took tens of millions from Bloomberg to falsely convince the public that King Cole is dead. They claim Bill Clinton saved the ancient forests. It will go to more exposés. I am pushing for including Cole, Forrest, and other sellouts too. If we continue to let such misleading leadership off the hook, we and many more innocent species are doomed. Last point, power down, people down. I realize I sound furious. I admit it. Not just because of the smears against the filmmakers. I am angry about all the time and have been wasted when we all knew the facts for years, all the volunteer hours, all the funds that could have been put to better use, the freaking lack of effective strategy after all this time. We have a multi-million dollar climate industry with no results and no accountability. Limited ethereal tactics like divestment and renewable energy. 
limited by funders and political partners to forever pulling their punches in a do-or-die combat with an existential crisis. Ultimately, I am most pissed that the group goal of the movie is to open a discussion about something about some things that are sacred cows to the climate movement, and as such, are the limiting factor in surviving or not. We must have this discussion. We are far using too much energy to fuel our unsustainable consumption, no matter what the energy source. Does it really make sense to add to the overall energy consumption? Is that an electric bike really necessary? Just what is the carrying capacity of our habitat? At what level of consumption would each of our 7.5 billion numbers have to equitably live for it to be sustainable within that carrying capacity? Has the climate movement actually made a dent in carbon pollution? Do renewables even keep up with the rate of overall energy growth? What is the measure of success? Is it a short-lived feel-good nibbling around the edges, or is it stopping the headlong rush to extinction? Quite importantly, what are we going to do when things go back to normal, when consumption of everything, including carbon pollution, resume rising. We could power the grid with unicorn fart, but if we go on consuming at the same or likely higher rates, we'll still eat the planet. These questions are what the documentary is really about. It was the intent of the movie to initiate the discussion. How do we lower a collective oversized footprint to sustainable levels? There is no prescribed solutions presented in the film, in fact, there is another of the scurrilous critiques. It's up to us to come up with and act on sensible solutions. I'll go first and start uh, with a small one. How about every household gets a coupon for 10 LED light bulbs for filling out the census? Propose much. Let's get started. Michael Donnelly has been an environmental activist since the first Earth Day. He was in the thick of the Pacific Northwest Ancient Forest Campaign, garnering some collective victories and lamenting numerous defeats. That includes his email. So I went with the two kind of, um, both the fully negatives, fully bad faith, and this one is the fully kind of good faith, good faith side of it.
Now for two um, nuanced, more nuanced takes. This one is uh, from no big outlet at all. It's from Paul Fenn's local power blog. So at the same time, the end of April, he also wrote a review. And it's called What They Get Right and the Environmentalists Get Wrong. So two nuanced takes. Uh, the second one is from an activist uh, in the Green Party that duh, is very much involved in divestment campaigns. So the last author, Michael, kind of included the divestment in the more ineffectual tactics. For those that, um, to explain, divestment is the campaign to get large institutions, whether they be colleges, government pension funds, basically any large fund that has a huge cavalcade of things they invest in, like they invest in the stock market generally. And that means that fossil fuel industry is included. So it's kind of looking at using the levers of capitalism to defund fossil fuels. Sort of like trying to use capitalism to defund the police, <laughs> which makes no sense. Uh, I don't know how that would be done. But in this case, it's about uh, getting pension funds to disinvest in in fossil fuel industry. Actually, you know, you could. If, if you get everyone to deinvest in the same way in military gear, in the military-industrial complex, that could be the next campaign, actually. But again, like... Why not just divest everything from Wall Street, everything from uh, big capitalism, big industry, big anything? Deinvest from the big banks, you know, move your money, campaigns, all that stuff. So it was written by, again, it was, uh, his name is, oh yeah, Paul Fenn, okay. Planet of the Humans has stirred the resentment of many a climate crusader. Yesterday, the chair of the Sierra Club, California Energy and Climate Committee, instructed climate members... Of committee members, of which Paul here is one of them, not to watch or promote Planet of the Humans. Talk about uh, party line, huh? Today, climate scientists call for the film's suppression, enticed by such parental warnings. Like an aroused teenager, I just had to watch it. The film, produced by left-wing idol Michael Moore, appears to expose and debunk current environmental initiatives for 100% renewable cities in the United States. Sierra Club activists uh, view the film as undermining climate action on Earth Day. But as a creator of community choice aggregation, that's the process where a municipality uh, bulk buys power from renewable sources. And then it's the mass buying of renewable energy. And it, so it lowers the price for consumers. But as the creator of community choice aggregation, which accounts for 70, 67 of 71 U.S. cities that have actually achieved 100% renewable electricity as of 2020, I feel compelled to speak up. There is some truth to this film, hidden behind a multitude of glaring falsehoods. It is important to explore what the film gets right. As climate activists in the era of climate disruption, we must be clear that what our carbon reduction policies are actually going to achieve as we push local communities around the world to implement Green New Deal programs. Paris Agreement targets, climate mobilization, and renewable energy initiatives. Let's not get caught up, after all, in lies created not by environmentalists, but by utilities and governments that have propagated them. They are not our lies, and therefore, we need not keep them, but renounce them when clearer, bolder, more concerted actions 
required to meet the United Nations 10-year horizon uh, to avert ecological damage to the planet. Now, he's referring to the fact that many groups, nonprofits, whatever, they, when the government lies about something, they kind of have to go along with it. Otherwise, if they don't, they're not in the local government's good graces and the local government won't carry out their initiatives. When it's just you or it's just your small group that's lobbying or advocating, uh, working with elected officials, you're kind of on your own. You don't have a lot of leverage. So you're kind of up to ass kissing. You kind of have to kiss the ring and make sure you don't upset the people that you've built a relationship with. Because instead of building relationships, say, in working class communities, uh, organizing workers, you know, the real hard work, it's much more of a shortcut to build one or few relationships with elected officials, the people who are in office. It's like going straight to the top. But that's not grassroots. It's astroturf. It means if they lie some, about something like saying we're on target to fighting climate change, you have to go along with it. And that, ooh, that makes me feel so icky. And it's why I keep my distance from the quote-unquote mainstream climate movement. I marginalize myself that way. Green Party is not centered when it comes to the climate movement because as a organization, we don't roll with that. We are the opposition. Uh, we make it our business to call out when said Democratic mayors or governors are bulls. Uh, the main message of Planet of the Humans is that renewable energy and electric vehicles and other tech cannot stop climate change, but merely introduces new forms of pollution and environmental destruction. The film's sense of hopelessness is mesmerizing. Reviewing the process of renewable energy in recent years, Film director Jeff Gibbs sniffs out contradictions and presents them in a kind of cascading epiphany of juvenile disillusionment. Wind farms' intermittency requires massive natural gas power plants. Solar farms destroy the desert. Lithium-ion batteries involve new forms of seabed mining for rare earth metals. Each solution to climate change creates a new problem to the extent that it merely repowers the same economy, the same civil society, in the conclusion, humanity is destructive. But really, it's, it's all capitalism, and we need transition away from that, not just transition from fossil fuels. That's very limited. We need transition from the entire system. That's why I found it encouraging when the mass, uh, most of the climate movement took on a tone of system change, not climate change, you know, political revolution. But the follow-through with that slogan was lackluster. Since the movement or the groups or the protests that had a system change, not climate change slogan didn't join independent organizations. They joined organizations that went along with establishment lies. Now, maybe I've got my thing myself confused. Maybe the Green Party and the people I roll with were the ones using system change, not climate change, because that's one of you know slogans I use. So maybe I'm just boosting what I do in my own head. Why wouldn't I? Gibbs and Moore's critiques are real, but they oversimplify the problem they describe as an existential crisis with no exit. It delivers them into the pessimistic catch basin of overpopulation theory. We simply have to die to solve climate change. This lettery insight is indeed the conclusion of the film.
However, if you look at inferred satellite images of global greenhouse gas emissions, you'll quickly observe physical sources do not correspond to high population areas, but to modern economies, that is, machines. Cars, power plants, heating fuels cause climate change, not people. Let us look at China as an example. Before it was opened by the climate Clinton administration to investment from the West, it had been very low carbon emissions. In just a couple of decades, its industrial modernization has made it the epicenter of climate catastrophe. Constant driving, overconsumption, and parasitic capitalism have caused climate change. Therefore, to stop climate change, we must alter modernity, not blame people or wallow in misanthropy. Specifically, we must remove the growth imperative from energy. To do this, a climate mobilization strategy must wean itself from neoliberal dependency upon incumbent energy corporations or financiers who require consumptive growth in their business model in order to profit from its development. Oddly, Planet of the Humans reproduces the, fictition, the fictions of neoliberal environmentalism. It fails to get to the truth by rectifying technology as the problem. Now, this confuses me because, uh, to me, the first um, third of the movie is doing that. As pointed out by the other articles, like, it attacks renewable tech. It attacks the idea that tech is the solution by saying that, thus, on the other hand, tech is then a problem. And it does this through a montage of industrial production, where it shows... Uh, all of the industrial processes that go into creating solar panels. So it starts with the pit mining of the minerals in China, the centrifuges, the forges, the metal creating, you know, it's, it's this big, long cavalcade while it's playing the da 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 uh, music to just show how much energy is being used in the creation of solar panels how much industrial processes, which of course all have their own pollution outputs. The argument is that, you know, we build the solar panels with energy we're using now anyway. So in the future, we don't have to use that energy again. This ignores that solar panels have a lifetime. They basically last, if they're good, 30 years. If they're not good, meaning the ones made in China, and they're the ones that are actually being put on all the targets and Walmarts, they have a lifespan of 10, 15 years. Meanwhile, environmentalists criticize Planet of the Humans with a similar naivete, citing the film's lies and attacks on what they consider to be promising progress. Where their critique fa fails is in seeing any progress made as close to remotely adequate relative to the scale of the crisis and the hyperspeed by which we must attack it. Planet of the Humans states that the 100% clean energy movement led by Sierra Club with an 80 million donation from Michael Bloomberg, 17th richest man in the world, has created a renewable front for natural gas. This would seem to imply a nefarious conspiracy, but in fact it merely reflects the state of things, to which the Euro Club and other leading climate warriors have warily adapted themselves, a state-sanctioned system of salutary fictions. Because environmentalist leaders, facing limited political options, from their own imaginations, really, blur the lines between what is real and what is symbolic with respect to clean energy. They leave themselves open to charges of falsehood. Indeed, the renewable energy industry is guilty of the propagation of a convenient fiction. 
Since the 90s, renewable energy policy has remained inside a neoliberal envelope, widely adopted by state governments and environmental champions of such policies. These policies are the holy grail of renewable energy in 2020. They include renewable energy certificates, carbon credits, greening the grid, net energy metering, and feed-in tariffs. Together, these fictions are a startup strategy to begin something new, not an endgame strategy to transform energy. So what this paragraph is saying is that in 30 years, right, the policies that were proposed in the 30 years ago have been over the decades been accomplished. And the activists that have been pushing them are patting themselves on the back. Point is that these policies are capitalist friendly, they're money friendly, meaning banking friendly. They don't challenge markets or consumption or any of the things that matter. The first fiction is embracing renewable energy statistics as real when they are not. So now he's going to go into what is the problem with these, these things? Uh, why, why are they not enough? Why are they not effective? So let's go into that because this is something I haven't covered. The first fiction is embracing uh, these renewable energy certificates or RECs as real when they are not. The 100% renewable movement is certainly guilty of this because it does not distinguish between physical and symbolic action. A renewable energy a REC is a legal invention, not energy. Yet the legal invention authorizes its purchaser to call it renewable. This is confusing because it is untrue. A REC state law in the most pro-renewable states allow a seller of coal-fired power to claim that his product is 100% renewable because he bought these legal documents from out-of-state wind farms in Texas. This is referred to as mitigation under state law under the U.S., and blurred into legal definitions of green power. This thinking follows a logic that the environmental movement has been trained to accept from day one of electric industry restructuring in the early 90s. A market logic. RECs are a financial, not a physical transaction, and so on. We are not building renewable energy, and yes, the power plants generating the power you are purchasing as 100% renewable are in fact coal-fired. The rationale is that the legal documents, the RECs, we have purchased will create an incentive upstream in the market to become greener, a.k.a. Uh, neoclassical economic bull. We just need the right incentives. It creates an incentive. It just is, it's just an assumption. Is this based on anything? No. Is there evidence that uh, there will be an incentive later? No. So let me, re, uh, let me rephrase what I just read that you have these power plants that are fossil fuel based. They buy these documents of mitigation certificate uh, that, um, you know, wind farm creates a certificate and, okay, let me rephrase again. Fossil fuel plant owner buys stock in or an investment in a wind farm. By doing so, and through this initiative program, he's buying renewable energy. And this is mitigation, uh, or a sub, and this is created as a substitution for their pollution, right? 
by buying stock or investment in a renewable energy source, this was to, this is legally a mitigation of the pollution they're creating. So thus the supplier with the fossil fuel plant gets to tell his customers legally that he is generating renewable energy. So you have these um, supply companies in New York that say their mix is 60% renewables, but really is 60% certificates or mitigation credits, and it's actually all fossil fuels. So you have consumers in the public at large, the public that these organizers really don't want to organize, or these climate leaders, find it really difficult to organize, put it that way. It's very difficult to organize people in our country. They think that um, the, the mix of power out there is more renewable, that it's mostly renewable. And that's and thus it's easy to believe that there's lots of progress. But the truth is you have a glut of renewable energy, say in Texas, and this allows other states to pretend that they are transitioning to a renewable energy economy. The fiction of carbon credits is that laws allow corporations causing massive amounts of carbon pollution to claim that they are 100% carbon neutral by purchasing them. Again, the same claim is made that the purchase of such credits sends an incentive to the market to reduce carbon. But really, it's an incentive to keep doing what you're doing. The use of incentives, in quotes, pervades renewable energy and carbon policy, you know, market mechanisms, and profoundly undermines the ability of people to be able to differentiate between real and unreal. It's hyper-real. Today, the environmentalist establishment is guilty of propagating these unreal policies in order to galvanize public support of oversimplified, financialized, superficial paths to carbon reduction. Because... The ends are justified by the means, and the end is carbon reduction. We'll get there eventually. We'll get there. So if it means we have to propagate this, these fictions, it'll be worth it. That's what they believe. To avoid passing the threshold of being able to avert climate catastrophe, movements for climate mobilization must take notice of decades-old incentive schemes, schemes that were never designed to do anything but stimulate infant green industries not physically transform and decarbonize the system. A third fiction is the notion that we can green the grid. The effect of this approach is the equivalent of pissing into the ocean, a growing ocean, a global demand. Adding wind farms and solar farms to the grid is caught in a permanent dilution, whereas the planet of the humans points out, grids require solar farms and wind farms that generate power 20 to 30 percent of the time backfill with gas plants to generate 70% of it. This gives the lie to the economies of scale. As long as renewable energy is not local, meaning sited at the location of use, and indeed smaller, this intermittency will continue to require significant fossil fuel in tandem. And as the film rightly points out, natural gas is not clean. Quite the contrary. It's as harmful as coal. This brings us to the final least understood fiction of all. Virtually all on-grid solar systems in the world today are wired, used, and paid for on the same fictional principle as those renewable energy credits. 
carbon credits, and the green grid. Not to reduce the need for grid power in a building, but to sell power back to the grid. Net energy metering, or feed-in tariffs, are guilty of deliberately avoiding reductions in grid energy demand. It avoids the need to reduce. And in maximizing energy transactions and grid use, rather than reducing demand and grid use. Uh, these policies render the carbon benefits of solar superficial and drive up the need for more grid investment, resulting in more fossil fuel use. These failings of renewable energy are not the result of solar and wind tech and its waste, but of how they are designed, how they are owned and controlled, meaning by capitalists. Planet of the Humans makes the fatal mistake of correctly identifying some of the cracks in the edifice of carbon reduction, but wildly misses the mark of causality. Their insistence on a kind of sentimental aestheticism, for example, that solar panel manufacturing requires energy and metals, is a silly millimeter-deep insight. That windmills are made of steel and concrete is an utterly fuelless objection, reflecting an absence of perspective or proportion and an ego a uh, thought just flashed in my head that more in his style is purposely, he kind of keeps things simple and emotional so that it can connect with his mostly suburbanite audience, uh, middle class audience. Especially it's, that it's an American audience. So, yeah, he's not talking about global overpopulation. Certainly not the film isn't. And again, it's the midpoint. It's like 10 minutes where it takes this misanthropic turn. And then it kind of keeps going. And interspaced with all of the bashing of biomass and everything else, there are these short vignettes of people on the ground being affected by the pollution created by uh, or the business practices, you know, capitalist mode of production, uh, pressing and exploiting these uh, simple slash normal slash good people. The good news is that movements are currently underway to change all of these things, but these are not technological movements. They are not led by billionaire geniuses, big foundations, nor even most of the big environmental NGOs, but by municipal government uh, and the activists who support them. Importantly, the centralization of renewable energy development, the obsession with maximizing transactions rather than demand reduction, and the growth imperative, and it's an ineffectiveness as a carbon reduction strategy. These are all messages that have not been missed. These are valid insights that mainstream environmental leaders and their campaign messages continue to miss. But grassroots ones do get. Decentralization is a critical pathway. Ooh, that's a Green Party key value. With major movement underway across the nation and the world that the film also simply fails to acknowledge as if it didn't exist. In fact, the community energy movement is underway, led by a different breed of environmentalists. Local installation, pairing local generation with local use, with local investment, neighbor level sharing and cooperatives, interoperable use and storage of on-site energy, present wildly replicable proven strategies, blah, blah. Any mentions, any plugs, community choice aggregation, once again. The film snapshot of green energy is a little old, but so is the propaganda of mainstream environmentalists now idiotically calling for Planet of the Humans to be censored. 
Community energy programs are focusing on deployments of renewable energy tech. Do not purchase these uh, you know, market-based certificates to build mega projects, but to finance and build local renewable demand-reducing facilities in urban cores. They are physically building renewable energy microgrids, urban heat loops, energy-efficient automation in a way that reduces grid demand rather than merely selling back power to the grid. Not only that, they are focusing on climate equity, customer ownership and sharing, local job creation, so the majority, not the select few, can participate in and benefit economically from said renewable energy. These movements, which represent the cutting edge of climate action, are finding ways not merely to add green power to a brown grid, but to physically reduce the need for fossil fuel combustion and to replace demand for heating and transportation fuel. None of this is on the radar of Moore's film, but neither is it clearly distinguished in the minds of mainstream environmental groups that promote these 100% clean energy cities. Environmentalists and lawmakers need to learn to get real about carbon reduction if we are to meet that urgent 2030 deadline recently set by the UN. We need to get out of startup mode and into endgame mode. That means a radical physical transformation in three years, not ten to even come anywhere close to reaching that target. We need clearer paths to radical decarbonization that overcome the glaring contradiction caused by bogus strategies. Now, all of these um, critiques and responses were written during the uh, beginning of the pandemic, uh, but obviously before the last two weeks of unrest. Now, the unrest is based around the more focused demand of police reform, the reduction in the police state. I'd like to make an argument, or at least a thought, share a thought that, like, what's step one? Like, what's what's the issue you need to tackle if you're to open up all these other possibilities? If you focus on just one area of of action, like climate, that question gets narrowed down to like, what's the thing to do to open up more possibilities? The big thing that this points out is that the climate movement has been top-down focused, and the Green New Deal continues that. It is completely top-down. And when it is top-down in our system, it's going to be corporate-controlled corporate, uh, and provide corporate benefits. The benefits will trickle down, meaning all of these liberals and left-leaning and Democrats, they're really just doing more Reagan. They're really just doing more neoliberalism. They're just doing more of the same. But with this added goal of more solar power. As long as we have more solar power, it's all fine because it's not going anywhere anyway. That's the conceit. And I think that's wrong because it uh, it kind of surrenders to all the other injustice. Talk about a white-centric uh, perspective, Right? looking at Josh Fox, what causes people to rise up right now? It's the police brutality. It's the murder of black lives. And thus, it is actually the police state that is the actual in-our-face impending threat. That when it comes to the system and what protects it and what keeps it going, what keeps it standing, what keeps it looking strong and, and fuels the conceit that we can't do anything about it, it's the fear of the police state, of the authority, that 
property is going to be more important than human lives. Property and its ability to create profit. So I see the current developments to be showing greater truth that if we are successful, if there is some success in in reducing the police state, demilitarizing, making you know making things a little more like back in the good old days, of course, revolts and and movements were killed off by the police state in the past as well. So that's why the the abolition message is necessary. Not just defunding, the abolition, the the transition to a post-police state of keeping order because then that redefines what order is. Order is not just the maintenance of markets and profit-making. It is the actual creation of a new society, one that is putting human lives and our well-being first, not just as an after-effect of profit-making for the few. The creation of value for its ability to be, for its extraction and then consolidation under a thousand people. Paul Venn is an author of CCA 3.0, Achieving Greenhouse Gas Reduction. Uh, he's a co-author of Local Green New Deal, which can be found at localgreennewdeal.org, president of Local Power, and co-author of Enlightenment in the Age of Destruction. He lives in Massachusetts. Last, the second nuanced take from a long-standing member of the Green Party, uh, leader in the divestment movement or campaigner. His name is Mark Dunley, lives in my area. I know him pretty well, mostly. His article is called Deconstructing the Planet of the Humans. He published this uh, May 2nd, so it's a few days after the rest. There is a potentially good movie waiting to break out of Planet of the Humans by Jeff Gibbs. Unfortunately, it suffers from a lack of fact-checking and a strong editor, something Michael Moore presumably could have helped with. The movie raises a number of important points. Unfortunately, its extensive use of outdated data, particularly on renewable energy, undermines its credibility and casts a shadow over other points it is trying to raise. Its personal attacks on the motivations of some prominent climate activists also doesn't help. Thus, it, you know, it, um, call it distracts from the systemic critique. It is certainly correct that the world has made meager progress in moving to renewable energy and cutting greenhouse carbon emissions. A major factor in the lack of progress, which the film fails to highlight, is the political power of the fossil fuel industry driven by campaign contributions in the U.S. and its blatant corruption and the subversion of democracy worldwide. You know, it assassinates anyone trying to organize people in third world countries. A key point the film makes is that capitalism and its relentless and exploitative drive for profits is a root cause of climate crisis. So to Mark here, uh, it was not so subtle that you know capitalism and profit motive is, an under, is the underlying problem, not overpopulation. I think it's weird. So it is a matter of interpretation. Good art. So it's an argument, a subjective one, I guess, is should art be clear of its message, especially when it's a documentary, or should it leave it open to interpretation? Downside of leaving it up to interpretation is that it leaves people who are, you know, to have a bad or negative interpretation or a completely different interpretation. 
you know, one person watches the movie, Josh Fox, and interprets that Michael Moore is has sold out to fossil fuel industry or is going to do their work for them for some unknown, confusing reason. And thus that the first author, you know, is like, what's his agenda? What's he trying to do here? Others, like Mark, who are, you know, have been in the oppositional movement for a long time, but still interacts and works with and campaigns for that community choice aggregation, which we are building here locally, because it's pretty friendly to Democrats, or Democrats can be, local Democrats can be friendly to it. It's not really, it's going to save the taxpayers money, you know, the individual taxpayers, and and it's working within the market by, you know, group buying. The renewable energy industry at the moment is part of the capitalist system. Their prime goal remains profit, not saving life on the planet. For instance, the renewable energy industry successfully blocked the proposal by Governor Cuomo to publicly own new renewables. Prizes me that Cuomo would actually propose that, but I guess whatever. The film is hardly the first to point out the major problems with the nonprofit industrial complex. Foundations are tax shelters for the rich who have driven climate change. Almost all prefer the promotion of incremental changes that they can laud as a success rather than the more fundamental ones, both on issues and on the power structure. The hunt for funding and foundation dollars, the need to provide the type of small successes that attract such funding, heavily influences what positions groups promote. Funding is provided to the groups that are less threatening to the interests of the power elite and is used to undercut the more progressive voices. Funding was certainly a contributing factor in the major mistake by many of promoting gas as a bridge fuel, ignoring the negative impact of methane emissions. The issue of funding is why grassroots groups whose prime focus is not funding, but to save their families and communities are the ones that initiate the most important and cutting edge campaigns. If successful, the large groups then join and often try to weaken their demands. We saw this with the fracking effort in New York. There was also the larger philosophical debate around social change between promoting incremental reform and more revolutionary change, which is currently playing out about police reform. Oh, if you say defund or uh, abolish, you're going to turn off all those liberals you need. But of course, time and time again, it's the moderates that move to the extreme position because the extremists are loud in their face and actually holding leverage of some kind. The leverage we, I would prefer we hold is that of the strike or the power of collective action through large organizations, militant, independent, oppositional organizations. In lieu of having any of those, we're left with property damage. That's the leverage. Carry out a reform or a break and stuff. Shouldn't have to be that way, but if you ask any of the actual rioters on the ground, and I have seen clips of that stuff, that's basically what they're saying. We tried everything else. Everything else has been locked out. You know, we're not allowed to organize or the organizations aren't there. This is what we're left with. And I've expressed that several times. I'm not out there breaking stuff because I'm in an organization that at least makes me feel like a person, that I'm actually allowed to be oppositional and express my forbidden thoughts and positions that police abolition should be on the table. 
that it's that's the goal. The transitioning to crisis teams and and things that I'll cover in a future episode properly. Back to a Mark Dunley. Closely related is the interlocking ties between many liberal groups, the Democratic Party, and government funding, something that this movie avoids. This is what led environmental visionary David Brower, who revamped the Sierra Club but got kicked out and thus started Friends of Earth, to point out in 96 that Clinton and Gore in their first term did more damage to the environment than Reagan and Bush one managed in their three terms. Many will defend such relationships as pragmatic responses to how power is wielded in the U.S., but it has failed to produce the needed change. It is too often silenced groups when the Democrats are in charge. The Democrats, particularly starting with Clinton, mortgaged their party to corporate interests and has become one of the most conservative, pro-corporate political parties among the world's industrial, quote-unquote, democracies. Nor is it news that progress on halting climate change and moving to renewable energy has largely been a failure to date. We are rapidly heading to climate collapse. The Paris climate deal is a lot of hot air, not a real mobilization to halt climate emissions. In New York State, the recently enacted CLCPA, which is a community, it's an acronym that includes like Community Protection Act. Our local, our state climate deal, is inadequate to the task at hand. It is applauded by many as a historic breakthrough, though it largely mirrors an executive order first issued in 09. Supporters of the deal argue that we need to reinforce politicians when they finally take a small step in the right direction in order to encourage them to do more. Others, however, argue that applause for baby steps reinforces their desire for such small actions. With time rapidly running out to save life on the planet, more critical analysis is required. Turning again, personally, to the police reform movement, which is completely clandestine, completely grassroots. You know, BLM is not the organization that is... It, it, it's hilarious watching all these liberals saying, like, I'm with the movement. I'm going to donate money to the NAACP or the BLM tagline uh, group. This is a mistake. I mean, it's the only, like, they have money, so they want to do something with it and feel like they're helping. But guess what? A grassroots movement has no one place to dump money into. That's what's great about it. Or that's what uh, that's what's positive about it. That there's no group of people to co-op, to buy off. Not to mention that it's acceptance or use because there's nothing else, property damage and other militant tactics, like actually taking and holding space like Chaz. Chaz being the uh, Capitol Hill autonomous zone in Seattle, if you're not yet aware. Chaz it up, Chaz it up. Uh, most climate activists are aware of the barriers involved in moving to 100% renewable energy, from grids to reliability to storage, Progress, however, is being made on all these fronts, something the movie fails to acknowledge. More will be made as increased research resources are devoted to it. So Mark is more optimistic about that, like Paul there. That's why I consider these the nuanced tanks. Takes It um, acknowledges all the systemic problems as well as the more bad faith criticism. This, These two are good faith criticisms. 
The film also makes a point that our present lifestyle, especially in the U.S., is not sustainable. We are not. We will not survive climate change, the collapse of the ecosystem, and the sixth great extinction by merely plugging our society into renewable energy rather than fossil fuels. We don't need billions of electric cars, far-flung suburbs, and a chemical-driven food system. Decentralize and localize. So for that, like, missing solution in the movie... Those two words are key. Many climate activists understand this, but worry that highlighting the need for a fundamental change, lifestyle or otherwise, will generate a backlash among the public and undercut support for climate action. We already hear changes of nanny gate and wanting to stop people from buying hamburgers at McDonald's. COVID-19, however, has resulted in a dramatic change in lifestyle providing an opportunity for re-examination of how we organize our lives and work. A significant part of the movie is taking up with correctly criticizing support for biomass, especially the utility-scale burning of it, uh, which is prevalent in Vermont. However, many, if not most, climate activists now realize the fallacy of it. In 1985, I wrote one of the first reports pointing out the environmental and financial dangers from garbage incineration at the time, at a time, when almost all of the environmental movement was promoting it. In a few years, most groups switched to opposing incineration. Here's a follow-up that uh, Mark also wrote. The planet of the humans has generated a lot of discussion, though most is divided into camps opposing or supporting it. Uh, let's see, there are many points in the film about renewables that are not accurate to the present reality. And that's kind of more of what we've been covering. As an advocate of democratic eco-socialism, as the Green Party is, I understand that we need to promote the end of capitalism. The market, which drove the climate crisis, cannot possibly solve it. Perhaps even more controversially, at least among progressives, is that we need to acknowledge the failed strategy of supporting the Democratic Party as a solution when they are a core part of the problem. We need to be cognizant of the conflict of interest that arise from funding sources, which is, and has long been, a major problem within the environmental movement. But to our present situation, COVID-19 crisis provides a critical opportunity to demand a different world moving forward. It is a moment that the climate movement must aggressively mobilize to seize, yet our voices have been far too muted since the lockdown. The idea that the transition to renewable energy to the Green New Deal, with its twin goal of economic equality, is too expensive, has proven to be false, as Congress has thrown trillions at the COVID crisis, much of it to benefit the 1% and its corporate allies. One last point from the review by Richard Heinberg of the Post-Carbon Institute, who is admittedly portrayed as a good guy in the movie. He makes some important points. Quoting him, We found that the transition to renewables is going far too slowly to make much of a difference during the crucial next couple of decades would be God-smackingly expensive if we were to try replacing all fossil fuel use with solar and wind the ways we use energy today are mostly adapted to the characteristics of fossil fuels. So a full transition of renewables will require the replacement of an extraordinary amount of infrastructure in our food system, manufacturing, and building, and heating, the construction industry, so on and on. Although the most realistic way to make the transition in an industrial country like the U.S., is to begin reducing overall usage substantially. Eventually running the economy on a quarter 
a fifth, or maybe even a tenth of what we use now. Is it true that mainstream envios have oversold renewables? Yes. They have portrayed the transition away from fossil fuels as mostly a political problem. The implication in many of their communications is that if we somehow come up with the money and the political will, we can replace oil with solar and continue living much as we do today, though with a clear climate conscious. That's an illusion, and that deserves shattering. To keep drawing a, a parallel with, with defunding the police, you know, it's a similar thing that we can have a nicer police force or even a little defunded, a 1% drop in their funding, and that's fine. That we can keep having the system we have today and have and still have a police force that enforces property laws or laws as it does now, and, and all can be less racist. But that's patently uh, a myth. It's a myth. You know, America is a racist country not because its people are inherently bigoted, but because America as a country with its systems, with its economy, with its empire, must be racist. The policing has to come down on certain groups. It has to put property rights over human rights. It has to put the ability of a business district to look clean and be profitable over the ability of the residential working class neighborhood of having a positive quality of life because they're making or generating less value for the market than the downtown is. So I'm going to include two more things in this show, uh, but I want to dig a little deeper into like what co-option kind of looks like and how it's um, mystified or obstruct, um, obstructed but camouflaged in the form of pretending certain things aren't there or pretending you're independent. So I'm going to turn to a Facebook post by Green Party congressional candidate Steve Greenfield. It's been a while since I brought him back. I read him a number of times when I started the show two years ago. That was the last time he ran for Congress. He is doing so again, of course. And he was sent a Q&A by the Sunrise Movement that he answered, but he has some additional questions for them. Here are his comments, and he includes a basically an email chain where he attempts to get a straight answer out of their um, volunteer, who is not leadership, and thus can't really answer him. So it's kind of a one-way conversation. But taking his questions and comments together is almost like a whole other article in itself, because he's quite a prolific writer. I don't know how he does it. Well, it pains me, but does not surprise me to have to report that the Sunrise Movement is complete bullshit and is another one of several richly funded fake groups serving the steer young people who are interested in critical issues of the day towards supporting Democrats who do not support action on those issues. I honestly have no idea how we're supposed to stop climate change or anything else when billions of dollars of surplus cash are always available for the Democrats to just buy everyone onto off-ramps before they're even out of high school. The Bernie campaign is also included in all this, by the way. If we don't stop the Democratic Party from both shutting down the left and steering youth away into pretend leftism that serves the very power they'd thought they'd come to undermine, 
I just copy and paste my Q&A with Summarize staff, which I initiated when I got an email from them advising me to make calls to promote a people's bailout. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's not a Green New Deal related issue. The Green New Deal is supposed to be their sole mission. Not that I was ever falling for that. So, fun as they are to watch, the earnest kids in the yellow t-shirts are a combination of people who have been misled and exploited, and the people misleading and exploiting them. They are not here to force aggressive climate change policy. They are here to bring people who want to force aggressive climate change to where they can do no harm to corporate interests, while expanding the fake Dem brand on being a home for young climate change activists as well as activists on the other issues identified with interrelated groups. Don't join. Sunrise is an off-ramp into a dead end. And if you know anyone who is considering joining, the glaciers, droughts, floods, and wildfires want you to talk them out of it. As a rule of thumb, if you see a very well-funded system featuring young people in matching t-shirts, it's just Democrats. So Steve, as a congressional candidate, got uh, or on numerous email lists, particularly uh, the Sunrise Movements, he got an email to uh, support uh, demanding a people's bailout with a PR mass email of across the country, our communities are asking for support, aid and protection. People everywhere need to help, need help to receive medical care. You know, the, the, the pandemic, you know, pandemic response. That never came. Mentioning Amazon workers striking for better conditions and so on and rent strikes. Saying that on May 1st, you know, general strike or rent strike, people across the country will join others globally to make some noise and tell our stories in solidarity with one another. To join the May Day live stream, go to this link. It calls on, you know, asking Steve Greenfield to, you know, or anyone else to call on Congress to pass a relief and stimulus package to meet the needs of our communities, as if they were actually proposing that. So Steve responds with, you know, isn't Sunrise a climate change group? Why are we demanding a bailout for anything besides green energy and no money at all for fossil fuels? I joined this group because of its climate change mission. I have a general left agenda myself, but that's not why I joined Sunrise. A group having issues beyond the core mission drives away anyone who doesn't agree with you on those issues. More and more, I get the sense that Sunrise and a few closely affiliated groups that identify themselves as having a core mission, but are also rallying jointly around a bunch of other stuff. They include our revolution and for keeping progressives tethered to the Democratic Party, whether or not the Democratic Party is acting on any of the issues. Can you please provide me with some clarity on why an environmental group is calling for a people's bailout? And it goes back and forth and back and forth. Here we go. So after not answering his question by just saying, like, we care about things more the, other than the climate, something like that, or we want to be in solidarity with these other movements, Greenfield asks uh, more questions. Why did you send me a slogan like, we are not looking to the left or right, we look forward, when 100% of your messages are very distinctly left? All the organizations with which you coordinate are very distinctly left, and in all cases, more to the left than the dominant mainstream of the party is peoples followed by anything ever meant in a way other than left. Come on, I ask you an honest question. I'm not a Republican, I deserve an honest answer. It is not random when you pass on information on other issues on your pages and emails. You share posts with a very specific set of groups and also share a very specific set of Sanders campaign operatives. 
and also share a very specific group letter that indicated you'd be spending $100 million on election messaging through the remainder of this cycle. I'm 58, and I've been an activist and a candidate, twice successfully, most of my life. That's not the kind of money that comes from college students and 20-somethings donating on ActBlue, which also indicates something since ActBlue is only available to Democrats. I know that because I've tried to subscribe to them and they gave me the conditions. That kind of money indicates institutional support. And all of you have had your online video postmortems of following Sanders' departure from the primary headed up by Sanders' campaign staff. That, too, is no accident. I would like to be on the Sunrise side, but first I need to be assured that you are not part of a package of interrelated youth branding movements that are embedded in the Democratic Party, which is how things appear to be visibly visible by the evidence. Going back to the original progressive youth movement in electoral politics, Get Clean Virginia in 1968, which uh, produced a plurality victory for Eugene McCarthy, and a police riot in Chicago in which thousands of peaceful protesters were beaten, tear-gassed, arrested, to the present day, there are no instances of such efforts having been successful. While there have been many instances of them drawing earnest and capable people away from exploring other avenues through which they could generate greater influence on electoral politics and movement politics in general. The most significant constituency in getting power behind stopping climate change is independent farmers. They have no interest in the wider progressive agenda. I know this firsthand. I live in a rural, rural area and have gotten their votes away from Republicans. And the educated, mostly urban and suburban liberals propelling the climate movement talk a great game, but nothing stops them from voting for pro-fracking Democrats, which is nearly all of them. And that's not open to debate. That's empirical. Also empirical is that 2018's Red to Blue congressional campaign produced eight freshmen to P Pelosi's right for everyone to her left. For all the media ballyhoo, the Democratic Party has again moved sharply to the right. I'm not asking this because I personally don't support the overall progressive agenda. I do. I am part of Never Again Action. I've been arrested multiple times at immigration, climate, anti-war actions, and have organized many large-scale rallies, voter reg drives, volunteered for campaign committees, a couple of which have had history-generating outcomes. I am one of the organizers and the press agent for the 2004 same-sex weddings in New Paltz that galvanized public opinion on that issue. I am asking only because on all the evidence about your operation points to our revolution and the Democratic Party, which you should surely know by now, is not particularly interested in it beyond using you as bait to keep progressives from organizing and bringing votes outside of the Democratic Party. Now, a counterpiece of news is that the Our Revolution chapter in L.A. has voted to not deal with Democrats anymore. Like, they voted to form a third party, but not join one, but to try to build a another like new labor one this is because there's numerous kind of uh burners or bernie crats that are supportive of a third party that has like a labor name has a labor theme to it uh but not the greens and this their complaint is only that it's a branding issue i roll my eyes at this if you care about the issues and the reality more than the fiction and the packaging then the brand should not matter to you.
Maybe it makes you a little uncomfortable, you know, since there is not an anarchist or communist party that's that's worth joining. Uh, the Greens will have to do. Because as Mark put it, democratic eco-socialism is pretty much our bag now. Whether or not others like that. Because <laughs> there are plenty of people that want this, you know, not right or left, but united. But that's a, that's a lot of hooey. That's what Steve is kind of calling out. Like, stop pretending that you're some nonpartisan entity when you're not. Be proud of what you are. <laughs> That's what I am. So, yeah. And um, otherwise, let me just kind of, I don't have my papers in front of me. But again, uh, this has been the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. Uh, all episodes uh, archived at threelefts.news. Found uh, the show itself is found last 10 episodes, found on all podcasting apps, pretty much most of them, any of the ones I'm aware of. Uh, let me know if you use a podcast app and you don't see the three live show or can't find it, uh, then I'll investigate. Uh, what else can I say? Uh, the Facebook page and Twitter, you can contact me via those instances. Check out the YouTube channel, Three Left Show which doesn't have a lot of podcast content. I have maybe a few live streams there uh, posted. But what I have posted in the last week was what I worked on, which were a mega clip montage of my performance at two mayoral forums when I ran for mayor uh, as a green candidate. So there's two uh, pretty, like, 15-minute clips. Uh, so you can see me in action. And... Uh, so with that, this has been the Three Left Show. Uh, keep wa waving the flags of the Three Lefts, and let's all reoccupy and start our own autonomous zones. Let's do it.